Hi everyone, Debbie Manning, one of your pastors, coming to you from my home. And I know that you're joining us from your home during this crazy season of COVID and cold weather. Hey, we wanted to let you know that we met with our health advisory team earlier this week. And under their guidance, we are going to continue with online worship through February 13th. As those COVID numbers hopefully start to drop at some point, our hope is that we'll be back together for in-person worship on February 20th. We will keep you posted, but with the way things are going, we have high hopes that that will indeed happen. We miss seeing your faces even behind those masks, so we're excited for a return to in-person worship. We also wanted to remind you that we have book club this Thursday night. It'll be a Zoom meeting, so you can go to our website. There'll be a Zoom link for you there at 7 p.m. Thursday night. We're reading the book, Homegoing. It's sure to be a great conversation. It's my second time around reading it. Such a good read. And so I hope you'll join us. The other thing we wanted to remind you of, if you're not connected yet, please get connected. It's such a great way to just stay involved, um, be in the know of what's going on. All you need to do is text TABLE to 33222. TABLE to 33222. And last but never least, Thank you. We are so grateful for your ongoing generosity that has allowed us during such an unusual and uncertain season to um, continue to be the church. You guys are amazing and we are so grateful for that. So if you want to continue to give, if you want to start giving, all you need to do is go to our website, click on the giving tab and it's all laid out there for you. So with that, thanks for joining us tonight. We truly do miss being together, but we look forward to that day that will come. There is light ahead, so we're all hanging in there together. Here's Matt. Hey, good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Matt Moberg. Welcome to the church. Welcome to the table. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are meeting here in my office because we're trying to navigate this complicated time that we are in and doing church separately but safely and and always together so thank you for being adaptable thank you for being patient thank you for being flexible as we continue to figure out like what is the best way forward for us to continue to meet as a community without perpetuating the pandemic that we are in we want to be a part of um, um, helping what's going on not hurting and that should just be standard gospel modus operandi is it operandi? Doesn't matter. This is the part of the worship service where we take a break to look to the scripture for some spiritual sustenance. And we're led as a community by the lectionary. And this week, it leads us to John chapter 2. Actually, correction, it led us there last week, but I thought that last week's readings were this week's readings. So we're going to John chapter 2. Let me start by looking at the end for our intro. In John chapter 2, verse 11, John kind of summarizes the story that he tells in 1 through 10 by saying this. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Now pay attention to that part right there because what we would call the miracle at the wedding of, in Cana, John calls it a sign. John insists throughout his gospel that these stories of Jesus defying the laws of gravity and, and doing these things that we would call supernatural, John says they're not miracle stories, they're sign stories, and that matters because John is trying to say that these stories in and of themselves, they are not the point. These stories are here to point. 
That's what signs do. That's what a function of a sign is. The, the sign when you're in a building that says entrance and exit, it, it's just a, a grouping of letters that has no um, functionality attached to it if there's not a door directly beneath it. You, the signs tell us where to go. This is important to note though, because oftentimes in religious traditions, we can get so stuck and, and uh, fixated on the language of signs that we miss the doors we're called to walk through. You know, Jesus, he would at one point say to a group of religious leaders, you guys, you study like every dot and jot of the law. You, you, you break down every, every verb and how it was written and where it was at and all that has a place, I suppose, but lift your eyes up every now because the, the manifestation of the meaning that you look for it is right in front of you and you are missing it. John does not want us to miss it. And so he says, these are not miracle stories, they are signs. Signs are not the point, signs are here to point. This is consistent even with just the uh, season of Epiphany that we are in. Epiphany, as we've said in previous weeks, is this season in between Christmas and Easter, Christmas and Lent, where we are called to see all that the light is now revealing. Epiphany comes from the Greek word epiphania, and it speaks to um, the light being turned on. Light does not produce anything new. Light reveals what has been here the whole time. And so in this season, with these signs, these signs are stories that are supposed to compel us to look beyond the stories. John, Epiphania, you, I, we are not here to stare at signs. We're here to walk through doors. And so together, as we go to John chapter two, Let's walk into this story, let's hear it with fresh eyes and ask what kind of doors are being set before us that we are called to walk through as a people. The setting is this, it's a wedding. Uh, it's happening in Cana. And it's, it's a little bit of a rager at this point because we find out that they're on the third day and they're already out of wine. The story goes like this. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. It's important to note that, uh, you know, mom doesn't look at her son and say, Hey, when you have a moment, could you whip up a fresh batch of Pinot Grigio? She doesn't say, Hey, hey, doll, hey, son, could you sit out the next song and, um, you know, go work on some fresh wine for the guests? No, no, she... She walks up to him and she just kind of says, you know, they're out of wine now. Scholars would go on to note that this is the earliest historical record that we have of passive aggressive parenting and it's happening right before our eyes. It is a tradition that has been well kept. It has maintained its effectiveness. It's still going on today and it's happening to Jesus. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. I don't care how passive aggressive your mom may be. I don't care how many WWJD bracelets you have on your wrist. Do not say this to your mom. Don't say this to any woman. I tried it the other day when Lauren asked me to help the kids with their homework and it didn't go over well. I won't be trying it anytime soon. Woman, why do you involve me? Why do you involve me? His mom doesn't even pay him any mind. She goes straight to the servants and says, just do whatever he tells you. He's gonna cave, just give it a minute. Do whatever he says when he does. It's interesting, isn't it, that Mary starts by speaking to her son and then she stops with speaking to the servants. And 
At some point, you and I ought to ask just the, the bigger question of why is Mary speaking at all? I don't mean that in like a sexist way whatsoever. I just mean like, Mary, this isn't your wedding, so why are you so concerned about the wine? Mary, you also are a guest at this wedding, and so why are you so anxious about the wine? What is going on, Mary? Why is this such a threat to you? Or what? why is your brow creased the way it is over you seeing those jars of wine slowly getting emptied? Well, maybe a little context would provide some clarity. Weddings at this time, they were a big deal. Not that they are now. I mean, weddings are always a big deal. I'm not trying to belittle the, the magnitude of weddings. They're awesome. Love them. I love singing Great Balls of Fire for the 127th time in a row. But at this time where you didn't have Oculuses or Xboxes or concerts on the weekend or big cities to go and explore, you didn't have a lot of access to fun, enjoyable experiences. Weddings were your fun, enjoyable experience. They were like Christmas morning with the gifts around the tree. They were a big deal. And so when there was a wedding, it wasn't a dying dance and ditch. It was this seven day event. Unless of course the wine ran out in the first couple of days. Then it was something else. Then it was a problem. Then it was an issue because it was the groom's job, the host family's responsibility to provide enough wine for seven straight days of parting. And nothing in this honor shame society would have been more shame inducing and, and collectively condemning than having to pull the plug on your wedding on the third day because you failed to provide an adequate amount of wine. So bad was it actually, so severe of a communal transgression that this was, that if you did not provide enough wine for seven days straight of wedding you could actually be taken to court by the bride's family because they were attached to your name and now they got some of your shame on them and that just isn't right. If the wine runs out on the groom, his reputation would be ruined too. If there's no cab left in the tank, there's no credibility left to his name. There's no good standing in the community. All of the people who were in your corner, they suddenly would leak out, just like you let all that wine leak out. I know that this sounds dramatic. I get that it feels over the top, but in this honor shame society, that's just how it was. Do you understand now why there is some anxiety rising up in Mother Mary, why there is a crease in her brow? And if you're still a little confused, let me clarify it further. This didn't happen on the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh day. This didn't happen on the first or second day. This happened on the third day, and that's significant. Obviously, our Christian radar should be going up right now when we think about the third day in the Easter story, but think culturally in this moment. For weddings at this time, the first two days, they were filled with um, like family unification events, practices, prayers, rituals, activities, dances. Uh, you would find these different means of bringing this family and this family into one family. That's what the first two days were all about. Your family and my family are becoming our family. The third day, however, was different. The third day is when the bride stood here and the groom stood there and they exchanged with one another their vows. They looked into each other's eyes and they said, no matter what is coming, no matter the sickness, the health, the babies, we might have money, we might not have money, we just don't know what's coming, I will keep coming for you. And I'll do so again and again and again and again, and I will not stop. That's my promise to you. That's what you said on the third day. How much weight do those words have when you say, I will never leave you 
while at the same time, the wine that you were expected to provide is leaving you. How can anything that you say about promises and, and fidelity have any kind of weight when you can't even keep the wine jar from going dry? Mary's not just worried about saving a party, she's kind of trying to save a marriage. And you all of a sudden understand why her brow is creased because your brow is creased because this is what happens when you have like cultural insights into the stories like these is you start to get this empathetic entrance where you can feel the heart of the groom and you can feel his eyes shifting to the corners of the room and you can see people walking around with empty cups and you know but they don't know that there's no wine left and the fear that he is feeling is a fear that you have felt. I hope I don't get found out. I hope I don't run out of the very thing that they came here expecting me to provide. Uh, I hope the thing that brought them in when they get close enough and they see that I don't have it, that it's not going to be the thing that kicks me out. Let me recycle it for you just a brief illustration from the days of yore uh, because it, was, it speaks to this story in a strong way, at least for me. I was watching this documentary. It was, had one of the most profound impacts, probably shouldn't have, but it did. It wasn't on some like historical genocide that I did not know about and now suddenly do. What it was was uh, um, the greatest mess that millennials have ever made. Have you heard of the Fire Festival? The Fire Festival was the greatest party that never happened. And it is this story of a guy named Billy McFarlane who partnered up with my teenage mentor, Ja Rule. And they decided they're going to piece together this music festival that would become this combo platter of great music and luxury living. And all of it was happening in the Bahamas. Like it was paradise. And they hyped it up so hard. They put millions of dollars into the hype around the event. They hired the world's top models, the top social media influencers. Everybody who was anybody started to pump this thing up. And by and large, it worked. Within the first 48 hours of the festival being announced, the festival was completely sold out with the high-end ticket price packages ranging from $12,000 to $250,000, airfare not included. Now you might be wondering, who is headlining a festival like this for a ticket price like that? Is it Bob Dylan? No, it's not. Is it Beyonce? No, I'm afraid not. Is it um, Cardi B? Not even Cardi was there. Who it was, was Blink-182. If you think that's the most painful part of the story, brace yourselves because hearing about Blink-182 playing at the festival is really as close as anybody got to actually hearing Blink-182 play at the festival. This was, after all, the greatest party that never happened. When the customers arrived and made it all the way to the Bahamas, instead of being picked up by models and fancy cars and stretch limos, they all got pushed into this rickety old school bus that was so old that at one point, the driver actually had to tell them to get off because he needed to go up a hill. And then when they get to the other side of the hill, where they were expecting to find their luxury villas where they'd be staying all week, instead they were pointed towards these FEMA disaster relief tents that would new, now be their new home in the Bahamas, just as advertised. So obviously at this point, it's like just chaos. People are like, wait a second, this is not, not at all what we signed up for. This is not at all what we paid quarter million dollars for. Could, um, what's going on? As the chaos is unfolding and it's like nobody has any idea what's going on, there at least, you know, there's some slim hope left and they're going, at least we're going to get that five-star chef who's going to come in here, make us a nice dinner, get us some good nutrition, and then we'll try to make a plan afterwards. Instead, they were each handed styrofoam boxes 
that inside of them were a few pieces of bread, a few slices of cheese, and I believe there were leaves on the side. Serves you right for spending $250,000 for a Blink 182 concert. The whole documentary, they, they give you a front row seat to it, and it's all so messy and bizarre and fascinating. But there was one scene in particular that has forever stuck out with me that I've told and pointed it out to many other people since. This is one scene that felt like it hit way too close to home. It's this moment where you see the people who are now upset, they're furious, just by how this is not what we were sold. And then in the midst of the chaos and the anger and this, this like uprising that is happening, Billy McFarland, he climbs up onto a truck to try to calm people down. And he, you can see kind of in his body language and in his face, he's coming to terms for perhaps the first time in the journey that he cannot supply the very thing that he sold. His wine has now indeed run out. And I remember sitting on my couch at our old house watching that scene and just the thought going across my head as I looked at his face that that is my greatest fear, period. Now I've never worked with Ja Rule on a festival. I don't know Billy personally. Uh, I don't plan on paying $250,000 to go to a Blink-182 concert, but I do know what it's like to feel the agonizing fear of not having what I'm supposed to have and not being able to provide the very thing that people are coming to me to pick up. See, there's this fear that comes with the initial stepping out on our journeys, whether it's, you know, a new job or a new relationship or a new, you know, reality of any kind. I don't really care. I know that the initial leap can be exhausting, can be exhilarating, can be terrifying. I know that the opening stage is scary. I didn't know, however, that the next stage would somehow be scarier. This stage where it's not about whether or not the tickets will sell, it's about whether or not the show is going to be celebrated. It's not about whether or not you're going to actually make it. It's about whether or not you can maintain it. It's not about the anxiety of wondering whether or not you'll ever someday find success. It's the anxiety that comes with wondering whether or not you'll run out of it when you do. Honestly, if I were to tell you the truth, and I'm going to do so for a moment here, I think this is why I work hard on even like these videos right here, like doing this sermon, doing these videos. I, I think that one of the reasons why I put so much effort into it, obviously like Christ gave his all, I'm going to give my all to That's okay. Yeah, sure. I mean, yes. Okay. But honestly, I have so much ego in me that I think one of the main drivers behind me putting the time and effort into sermons like this is because I don't want to stand next to Billy on that truck. I don't want to be surrounded by people who look at me and go like, this is it? That, oh, that's all you got, huh? This is, you know, I came in with expectations and my experience is this and you just, it's, you don't really have it. Now that I see you up close, you're lacking. I know it's narcissistic. I know it's egotistical, uh, all those things. I get it. But there are times where I'm finishing with the message. In fact, I did it like uh, last month where I went straight to the choir room behind the stage because I felt like I just got caught with an empty bottle of wine and these people came here for a drink. I, I just, it's only the third day and they came here with this expectation. I did not provide them what I promised that I would. 
I feel that all over the place. I feel that in ministry. I feel that in parenting. I feel it in music. I sometimes wonder if the last song I wrote is the last song I'll ever write. Do I have anything left in the tank? Has all of the wine run out? And, and who will I be if it has? Like, what do I have left of me with my art stuff? Like, do I, do I know how to take this thing any further? Do I know how to express myself in new ways? Has the best already come? Do I, is my tank completely dry? Is the jar completely empty? Do I have any wine left? Am I standing on a truck next to Billy? Am I having a paranoid anxiety attack just thinking about this right now? Yes, I am. Because that's a very real fear. I have about 27 different areas in my life that I, I am anxiously hoping that they do not dry up in. How many do you have? Because I know you have some. I mean, it was just the other day I was speaking with a mom who was talking about how there's nothing in the world she likes more than having her adult children come together, but when they're there, she's so anxious about making sure that they're having uh, fun and joy that she doesn't even enjoy when they're there. Like the best thing in the world becomes the worst thing in the world because she's constantly dealing with this anxiety of, what if I run out and yes, they're here now, but will they actually come back again? What are you running on that you are afraid you'll run out of? In me. One of the ways that I've identified what these areas are is by identifying the questions that come up before I go into them. In the places where I can feel like the wine is running out, the questions all start to sound so similar. Will they stay if I don't have what they need? Will they still like me if I can't be who they need? If I'm not funny enough, will they still find me to be enough? If I don't take on their crap, will they still take me on as a friend? What happens if I stop showing up at all the places like I feel like I should be, but I don't really want to be at? What if I start showing up with all the people I want to be with, but I was led to believe I couldn't be with? What will happen then? What will those who are with me now on day two do when the wine runs out tomorrow? How will they respond to me? Where will they all go when what they came here for is no longer here to be had? And without even realizing it until I slow down and see it, all these questions that are wondering, how do I bring other people in, have left me like that anxious mom realizing that I'm still being kept out. I'm at the party, but I'm not experiencing a party. They're experiencing joy. I feel like I'm on the job. They're experiencing abundance. I'm being drowned in anxiety. That question of am I enough is the question that haunts us ever since we were kids. It's in my kids' brains when they walk into a lunchroom. It's in your head when you walk into the office. It doesn't really matter. It's always with us. And Mary, she doesn't want the groom to go through this experience where he runs out of what the people are running in for and ends up standing next to Billy on a truck. And so she tells her son, Jesus, do something, anything, fix this problem. And Jesus, he does. I mean, if you know the story, you know that Jesus does um, end up turning the water into wine. But it's interesting to note that he doesn't do it right away. You know, he doesn't snap his fingers and just whip up a new batch. In fact, he allows for a dry moment in between. Jesus allows for the jars to completely go dry. He allows for the worst case scenario to completely unfold. He makes space for that thing that we are all terrified of, that great unknown fear to fully be faced and he allows for the jars to be still. And I'm grateful that he does because unless Jesus lets us run out of the very thing that we think we need to run on, we'll never come to see that we were never here to run in the first place. We were here to receive to rejoice, to rest, 
to experience the abundance of God and not the anxieties of dried up jars. This is why before every NBA game that happens down at the center, I look at both guys from both teams and I tell them that who you are is more important than what you do, even if what you do gets more attention than who you are. You're much bigger than what you do. You're much bigger than the jokes that you make, the accomplishments that you have, the trophies that you collect, the tragedies that you've taken on. You're bigger than all of these things. And when you don't have them, you actually can come to understand that you never really needed them that you were always enough and you never needed the evidence to prove that it was so. Your central task in life is not production. Your central task in life is not performance. Your central task in life is to participate in what has already been provided, to experience joy and be released from the job. And we will miss that every time if we spend all of our energy trying to preserve old wine so that we can keep people in the room instead of participating in the new wine that lets us be here too. The power of this story in John chapter 2 is not found in the wine that Jesus brings in. It is found in the wine that Jesus lets run out. What is the wine in your life that you need to let run out so that you can find out that you never needed it to run on? To move forward with your story, to trust that you are enough, that everything you need is already here, that you are the beloved of God as is right now, period. No asterisks attached. Love you guys. We'll see you next Sunday. I don't know about you all, but I've certainly fallen into the fear of running out, of not being enough. But the Jesus that we follow reminds us that we are enough. We are enough because we are beloved children of God, created in the image of God. And every Sunday night when we gather together to worship, we're reminded of that truth that we are enough. And one of the rhythms that I love is the rhythm of communion when we take that together because it's a chance to pause and reflect upon that. The night before Jesus died, he took bread, he broke that bread, and he said, this is my body broken for you. When you eat this, remember me. And he took wine and he poured wine into a cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. When you drink from this cup, remember me. And so that's what we do. We take the bread and we dip it into the cup and we remember a God that loves us just as we are. We remember that we are enough. And we're reminded of that when God works through us in all sorts of crazy, amazing ways. So as you take your bread, I pray that you hear these words. The body of Christ broken for you. When you take that cup, hear these words, the blood of Christ shed for you. And now together, let's pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our God who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let's sing together.